Thursday, December 1st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. And I'm so happy that joining me in studio today, all the way from Motley Fool, Germany, Matt Kopenheffer. How are you? Guten Tag, Chris. Guten Tag. I was I I did not know you were gonna be in town. So when I ran into you, I almost did run into you, like literally run into you on the sidewalk the other day. It was uh, it was a pleasure to see you. So I'm I'm happy you're here. And I and of course, I, it took me less than a minute of catching up with you to say when can I get you in the studio? And here we are. And here we are. And here we are. Nice um, quick. So I w- I want to talk about what's going on in Germany, um, and and why don't we start with for longtime listeners, longtime listeners remember. That our other daily podcast, Industry Focus, started out as five days a week. You and David Hansen, banking and finance, just banking and finance, banking five and finance, days a deep dive, five days oh, a week. Those were the glory days. Those were, and <laughs> with the with a fabulous name for a podcast, where the money is. So why don't we start with your bread and butter, or what I always think of as your bread and butter, and that's banks. Yep. Certainly. Since the presidential election was held here in the U.S., banking stocks on Wall Street have done quite nicely. Absolute tear. Is that the case in Germany as well? I mean, obviously, they're not subject to the same rule changes, in theory, that U.S. banks are. But what is the banking landscape in Germany right now? Well, the the rule changes will potentially, if they come about, help them a little bit. Not so much Commerzbank, but Deutsche Bank is... Has had its problems. I'll get to in a moment in, in Germany, but in the U.S. as well, passing the stress tests that the that the Fed has put forth, and so part of Deutsche Bank's and its problems with the U.S. regulators are leading to some of the biggest concerns that it's facing right now. But uh, yeah, there's there's been a bounce of the German banking stocks as well, not quite as much as the U.S. ones, but um, man, Deutsche Bank. Is proof positive that big is not always beautiful. It is uh, such a, a really ugly, ugly story. Uh, Why? Well, basically, I mean, if you look is, at is the, it essentially the German equivalent of what happened here with U.S. banks in two thousand eight, two thousand nine? Is it is it mortgage related? Is it or is it just generally black box related? Well, to Buffett fans, if I just say if it's derivatives related, there you go. Everybody's already <laughs> shaking in their seats, right? So it's actually a story of Deutsche Bank, uh, the managers, the the leadership, looking at the German banking industry 10, 15 years ago, and saying we are not going to be able to grow the way we want to grow within this industry. It is the the country itself has a lot of banks, and a lot of them are. Have are either savings banks, co-ops have some sort of quasi-government involvement in them, so you can imagine that this creates a competitive environment that makes it very hard to be ultra profitable, have high rates of growth, and the Deutsche Bank leadership, you could argue, smartly saw that this was the case, but the way that they addressed it was essentially by deciding we want to become a a more Anglo. Um, growth-oriented investment bank in the model of the the city banks in the city, as in London, not Citibank. Nobody wants to be like Citibank. <laughs> so, so, like those banks, or like the investment banks in the U.S. And so, essentially, what they did is they just t- took on a massive amount of risk. And we've seen over the last five years plus 
the unraveling of all of that, which still continues to happen. And Deutsche Bank is like one of the um, dirty bombs that still exists in the in the world financial uh, system. So, th- despite the unraveling, there is. It sounds like there is still a more than healthy amount of risk associated with Deutsche Bank. It, it still appears so. I, I mean. John Cryan, who's the CEO now, is trying to put the bank back on firmer footing. It's it's a Herculean task, and it's still unclear whether the German government will actually have to step in and bail out Deutsche Bank. Angela Merkel, who's looking towards the elections in Germany next year, probably wants nothing to do with that because no German citizen... Um, except maybe John Cryan, who's not a German citizen. But very few Germans want to see the government stepping in to help a bank at this point. It's a tough time to be an incumbent politician. (laughs) You're telling me. Uh, Let's move on to autos. And Volkswagen is still, to the surprise of no one, is still cleaning up their mess financially, etc. While that is going on, however, the rollout for electric vehicles in Germany and across Europe continues. And when you look at how a lot of them are partnering up to put charging stations across Europe, this seems like a tidal wave. Yeah, absolutely. And the the government almost wants to take sort of a scorched earth policy moving towards electric vehicles. The German the German government would like to see no more internal combustion engines after about 2030. I think is what they're looking at. They on the road or being produced. I think it's I think it's being produced, um, but I they essentially want them off the road, and this is it's it's an extremely aggressive move towards electric vehicles, which is, I mean, in some ways it just seems crazy. 2030 is. That's around the corner. That's not that far off. It, it seems far off, but it's it's closing in on us. But it's also brilliant. I mean, the auto industry is such an important, huge industry in Germany and has been so successful and been so effective. But we're already seeing huge changes happening in the auto industry. And by doing this in Germany, as long as there's not some drastic change in the outlook of the auto industry that electric vehicles that that's not the direction we're moving. If Germany takes such an aggressive move in that direction, it essentially forces the German automakers to focus very heavily on this and become world leaders. And if we look at renewable energy uh, writ large, the, the big picture of renewable energy, Germany made a very aggressive move towards that, uh, much more so than just about any country in the world. And they are world leaders in, in producing uh, renewable energy equipment. So when... Uh, I recently saw something from Trump, it might have been from that New York Times uh, interview that he did, saying that a lot of the wind energy stuff that we're using, the turbines and everything else, are produced in Germany. They are, because Germany made that aggressive move towards supporting and encouraging renewable energy. So they're now a world leader in producing the the industry that goes along with it. Well, it's, it's interesting on a couple of levels. One, because this is not new. I mean, you're right, this is very, in some ways very aggressive. Mm-hmm. But... This has been uh, government policy for, if if not a decade, certainly close to it, and uh, it's it's been a big push uh, for a while now. And I think you're right. I mean, particularly when you consider one in seven jobs in Germany is tied to the auto industry, yeah. they uh, they must have 
all of the automakers on board, or at least, if not enthusiastically on board, they're at least moving in that direction. Because and it, it's smart because it also gives them enough time. It's not saying we want this by 2020, right? Right. But we want it pretty soon after that. It's it's a it's a reasonable time frame. It's it's close, but it gives enough time for transition. I mean, when you when you think about how long people tend to own cars, the the lifespan of a car, it gives the the automakers a chance to help consumers and, and help with their with their marketing and sales and all the other infrastructure and and channels um, adjust to this. I think the last time you were on this podcast, it was uh, involved uh, transatlantic communication. And I'm, if memory serves me correctly, and it might not, because I'm getting Mo- up. Most of the podcasts I've been on have been about <laughs> transatlantic communication. Um, we, we, I think we talked about Berlin, which is where you live, uh, and the tech scene there, which really seems to be growing. Um, I'm, I'm not prepared to say it rivals Silicon Valley, but certainly one of the biggest players, uh, Alphabet, Slash Google is is putting down roots there, and it, I mean you're there. What I'm I'm there, so what, it's clearly a startup. so what 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 is the the startup scene in Berlin? Well, it's funny. A couple of years ago, I was on a, a on a panel um, talking about a, a variety of, of startup related things, and one of the questions was, and this was in London. So one of the questions was in terms of the the best startup hub in Europe, is it London or is it Berlin? And of course, I said Berlin and got booze from all the, <laughs> all the audience. There are, there are challenges that Berlin still faces as a startup hub. For instance, when you think about the financing infrastructure, I mean, Silicon Valley, you, you, can't, you can't go get a Starbucks without tripping over five different VC investors just on your way through the, through the line, right? In, in London, it's pretty much the same way. You've got a lot of money, a lot of investors ready to putting, put money into these companies. In Berlin, you don't have that quite yet. There are a lot of investors, not only homegrown from Germany, but also coming now from the U.S. and elsewhere who are looking at the, the startups in Berlin. But what Berlin does have is it's got... Uh, cheap. It's cheap. It's really cheap. So you can get people in there. You can get office space. You can get labor. You can get a lot of things very inexpensively, which obviously is good for a startup. Um, you can also Berlin also has this just like creativity and artistic um, and and this we don't give a darn about what anybody else thinks. This attitude that I think. Well, you, you need that if you're a startup. I, I think you do. Now, what's surprising is a lot of the startups in Berlin are, I think it's, I, they'd hate me for saying that they're copycats of, of other successful companies, but in some ways they are. So you look at Rocket Internet, which is sort of a startup incubator of sorts. Um, they've thrived off of essentially looking at successful business models and then funding startups along those lines. Zalando, which is a very, very successful um, former startup from Berlin is, you know, essentially Zappos, um, but a European one, and eh, maybe in some ways even better than Zappos was before they were bought by Amazon. Um, but there's a lot that Berlin has going for it that creates the cre- creates good startups. Well, and the fact that it's a big modern city helps. I mean, there are plenty of places in the United States that are cheap to live and yeah. to get uh, rental space and all that sort of thing, but they're they're not the size and scope of Berlin. I forget whether it was you or somebody else I was talking with the other day who who was referring to Berlin. Is it sort of like a 
um, developed world emerging market sort of situation. And in some ways it is. So Berlin is not Paris. It's not London in that sense that it is um, so heavily developed. I mean, for a long time, obviously, the city was, was split in two. So there's so much development and growth and, and energy that's taking place within the city that makes it really exciting and gives you a sense that there are a lot of uh, a lot of possibilities and a lot of opportunities in the city. Have you gotten a chance to go back to London to that panel and just say, <laughs> hey, how do you like me now? I'm going to go back in a, in a decade after Berlin has uh, incubated all of these Incredibly successful startups. I mean, this is this is not your way. Uh, you're you're a, a humble fool, but uh, I, I'm guessing on some level it is a little gratifying to you when you read stories about oh, and here are some startups who were based in the UK and they have moved to Berlin in the last few months. It's like yeah, all right, yeah. I think I called that. A uh, couple housekeeping things before we wrap up. Uh, one, I mentioned this the other day. Um, if you have an Amazon Echo. Uh, the Motley Fool has uh, a brand new skill uh, that enables you to get stock quotes, uh, create a watch list, create a portfolio. Uh, you can ask Alexa how your portfolio is doing, and it's free. Uh, the skill is free. So if you go to fool.com/alexa, uh, you can get all the details there, including. And I was I was mentioning this to you before we started taping, including a video of me with Alexa. Sort of running Alexa through the paces of setting up a portfolio and that sort of thing. Well, I was asking you how long it's going to be before Alexa is. Well, first she'll be a guest on the show, right? And then events eventually she'll be she'll be the host. Yeah, no, right? I mean it's just a matter of time before it's. Like, she'll put me out of work yeah, and then you. Alexa, host market foolery, and then I'm gone. Um, so yeah, fool.com/slash/alexa if you if you want to check that out. Uh, secondly, December first, not just the. First day of the last month of the year, but also the launch, and this is why it's perfect that you're here. The launch of Stock Advisor Germany. Yep, brand new service in Germany. For those unfamiliar, we do have a site uh, in Germany, fool.de. Tell me about Stock Advisor Germany. Yeah, ja, and for the Deutschsprachige uh, Fools, the the ganze site is auf Deutsch, and uh, dieser uh, Dienst ist. Uh, Stock Advisor Deutschland. So Germany, we'll, we'll we'll let you get away with that. But Stock Advisor Deutschland, we're we're really excited about it. So obviously the the fool's um, goal around the world is to help people invest better, and this is this is an, our second service in Germany, and this one is targeted at being able to be accessible to investors and fools of basically all walks. So from new investors. Who are looking to just get into investing? Don't have giant portfolios? Want to see what foolish investing is all about? But obviously, all the way up to very experienced investors who are interested in foolish investing and want to see some of our uh, German area stock ideas. Um, we will produce one stock idea every month, and I'm working with just such a phenomenal team out there. Myself, uh, Bernd Schmidt is actually the lead advisor on it, and then uh, Miklos, Miklos uh, Sizek. Sizekli. I always get his, uh, he's got a tough one. Go to fool.de. You can get all the details. Monday, this Monday, December 5th, we're going to New York City. We're going to do a live taping of Market Foolery. You know, if, if you've been listening for a while, you know we talk about burgers from time to time. So we are heading to Shake Shack in New York City 
to sample the food and then tape market foolery. And I got to give a shout out to Chris Woodford, one of our listeners, who suggested this in an email. And we thought, you know what? That that's just crazy enough to work. So we are headed to the Upper East Side because there's a bunch of Shake Shacks in New York City. We're going to the Upper East Side, the Shake Shack on 86th between Lexington and Third Avenue. 154 East 86th Street between Lexington and Third Avenue. We're going to be getting there around noon on Monday. If you're in New York City, we'd love to see you. Swing on by and join us. Um, and by the way, this is when you want to follow Market Foolery on Twitter because we're going to post all the details there. And if there are any updates, any sort of uh, travel snafus that postpone us a little bit, it's all going to be there on Twitter. So, check it out. And uh, again, Shake Shack, Upper East Side, Monday, December 5th. Uh, and last but not least, in terms of housekeeping notes, um, we always have new listeners on Market Foolery. So, those who have joined us uh, in this year don't know about the fact that last year, in the month of December, Dan Boyd, our producer behind the glass, and I decided we, we don't just want to help the world invest better with our little podcast here. We want to help the world realize that there's so much more wonderful holiday music out there than the 25 to 50 songs that just get jammed down your throat when a radio station flips to the all-holiday format. So, just as we did last year, from now until Christmas, we're going to be replacing our closing music with holiday music. So, um, so we'll be doing this all month. We'll be keeping the list. Last year we had people. Is this the first day? It's the first day. It's oh. December first. Yeah. Uh, last year we had people saying, "Can you send me the list?" I was like, "Yeah." Once we get to the end, once we get to the end of, <laughs> of the holiday music, I'll send you the list. Uh, so great to see you, Matt Copenheffer. Thank you for being here. Great to be here. Have a safe trip back. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Fuller. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Just like the ones I used to know. Where those streets are. Listen and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow, the snow. So then I, I, I am dreaming of a white Christmas with every Christmas card I write. Days, may your days, may your days be made.
Christmas Eve.